Hello, I'm Mark and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. So it's uh, nice to be back in my uh, office studio this week. I've uh, been recording the last few episodes out and about and uh, uh, back at home, uh, but uh, not for long. I'm uh, uh, After I record this, I'm uh, away to disappear to the airport and uh, off to do some training in Sweden and, uh, and then to Poland for um, one of the Rio Conventions conferences of the parties. So this is the, uh, the UN Climate Convention and I'm talking there and doing some work with policymakers around my research. So I figured uh, uh, what, uh, what better week than to, uh, to record an episode about policy impact. And, uh, and so what I thought I'd do uh, is I'm going to take my microphone with me. Uh, we'll see how this goes. I'm not going to guarantee anything. Uh, but if I find some interesting people, I might try and explore some of the issues that I'm going to talk about today um, uh, through some interviews uh, while I'm at this, uh, this UN conference. Um, and uh, whatever happens, whether or not I get some interviews and uh, and can get them uh, into an intelligible podcast episode for you, I will uh, do a part two uh, when I come back uh, and uh, and think a bit more practically. Uh, so I'll draw on uh, some of uh, my uh, experiences, uh, whether they go well or badly. We shall see uh, at at the conference, uh, but more broadly. Uh, to think uh, next week about the practicalities of how you go about making the connections necessary at the right level uh, and the kind of various formal and informal mechanisms that you can use very practically to uh, achieve impact from research evidence. Uh, this week, I want to, to to do a bit of a precursor to that, because for me, uh, it, when you dive straight into the practicalities of this, uh, you often miss the point. Uh, and the point is fundamentally that we want to achieve impact from research in the policy realm in a way which is responsible. Uh, and uh, that means that we need to think very deeply about our motives, uh, about our conflicts of interest, uh, and about the ways in which the policy process might work with us or against us to achieve potentially negative unintended consequences. And we need to have a deep understanding of our positionality within these policy networks and the roles we can play, uh, the pitfalls and the traps that we can fall into if we are to then use these practical mechanisms in a responsible way to actually achieve societal good uh, rather than bad. Uh, I think um, uh, for, for me, this has to start with the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, for me, this uh, really rocked my boat on a number of different levels. Uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if you guys experience the same uh, experience as as you listened to this story unfold and um, and empathised with the researchers at the centre of this, because there was a fairly large group of researchers involved in this, and not everyone uh, looked quite as guilty um, as the next person. Uh, and in particular, uh, my 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 particular uh, <laughs> sympathy went to uh, the lead author of a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, or PNAS, as it is called for short. Uh, who actually got um, a Paper of the Year award for this paper in PNAS in 2013. Um, I've got it on my screen here. Uh, it's been cited over 1,300 times, uh, so clearly a pivotal paper. Um, and the, the horrendous thing about this is that the authors of the paper at, uh, at this time 
Uh, let me go up to the top of the page. What's it called? Uh, Private traits and attributes are predictable from digital records of human behavior. And this is uh, Kaczynski et al. Um, uh, and in the conclusion of this paper, they write, one can imagine situations in which such predictions, even if incorrect, could pose a threat to an individual's well-being, freedom, or even life. And they go on to say, it is our hope, however, that the trust and goodwill among parties interacting in the digital environment can be maintained by providing users with transparency and control over their information, leading to an individually controlled balance between the promises and perils of the digital age. Perils, indeed, is uh, uh, an understatement, uh, I would suggest, for, for what actually ended up um, happening. And uh, and for me, this is the, the first lesson uh, in terms of our engagement uh, with anyone who can affect change, um, and in particular uh, in the in the policy uh, arena, which is ultimately where this ended up going. Um, if you're not familiar with uh, the story and how it unfolded, this was about um, uh, governments around the world um, uh, and political parties uh, hiring Cambridge Analytica, who uh, then uh, used the tool uh, in this uh, PNAS paper and uh, and a data set which uh, they uh, acquired uh, via questionable means to help uh, political parties or governments uh, micro-target uh, voters uh, in very manipulative ways to swing election results. Um, uh, and, uh, and for me, the lesson here is that we can't just passively warn people of the potential negative unintended consequences of our research in the way that the re these researchers did. Uh, yes, we can. That's a good idea. Uh, but is that enough? Well, clearly, in the case of Cambridge Analytica, it was not enough. Uh, and what can we do to take more control of this? Uh, should we and, and can we only be passive bystanders and see what happens to our research? Or can we do something uh, about this. Uh, and I would argue that we can. Um, uh, I'm going to go beyond the Cambridge Analytica case in, in this particular case. But uh, uh, the first thing is that uh, when I think that my research could potentially have a negative impact on a particular group, in a particular culture, context, time, whatever it is, uh, I do what I can to reach out to that group uh, proactively to understand, ideally before I've actually put this stuff out there into the world, actually, from your perspective, how does this work for you? Are there ways in which we could do this in a way which would be be more responsible that would be less likely to have a negative unintended consequence for you. Uh, and even if uh, there, there is no option there, uh, even things around the timing of when you put that stuff out and giving people a chance to adapt to what you're about to publish uh, can make a big difference to people's ability to adapt, to cope, to uh, be able to uh, ameliorate the worst negative impacts of, uh, of your work. But uh, another approach that you can take to this, which uh, in theory the, uh, the, the researchers um, in the Cambridge Analytica scandal could have taken, uh, is to proactively go about protecting your intellectual property um, uh, or in some other way uh, putting protections in place that mean that now you are 100% in control of this stuff. Whether it's that you've created your own spin-out company, whether it is that uh, you've got your university on your side uh, licensing this and uh, you getting a bit of a, a say over whether you license it to people or not, who you license it to, under what circumstances, uh, having the legal ability to, uh, to put controls um, uh, on these kinds of things. 
Uh, now, the problem in their case was this is uh, it's out there. It's a, a published paper. Um, and, uh, and at that point, it becomes quite hard to protect if you haven't already done that. Um, but uh, but the point is, uh, were there things that they could have done? Uh, and are there things that you could do that would proactively prevent people from or reduce the likelihood of people um, uh, cherry picking, distorting uh, and using your research in ways that you feel deeply uncomfortable about? Uh, and I think very often the answer is there is actually something that uh, that you can do. I think the second thing that the scandal uh, showed me and uh, one of the reasons, uh, the other reasons why this really rocked my boat is that very clearly uh, the end does not always justify the means. Uh, and I think that uh, if you look at the clients of Cambridge Analytica, uh, those clients probably believed passionately that the uh, if the opposition were to have got into uh, control uh, and win that election, that uh, that this would have been uh, for them unambiguously bad for their country, uh, and they probably had convinced themselves that uh, what they were doing in terms of manipulating uh, the uh, the process uh, by using these techniques uh, was justified because it was in the public interest to prevent those bad guys from getting control, uh, and of course. Um, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, uh, is absolutely in the, in the eye of the beholder. Um, uh, and, um, and when you go about using these uh, manipulative means, and of course, Cambridge Analytica went way beyond the, the micro-targeting of, of voters um, and creating these manipulative messages to honeypot traps for MPs and, and things like this that would discredit people. And, and clearly, yeah, they're, they're, you have to draw a line uh, at a certain point, and you may believe passionately that what you're doing is in the public interest, but that does not justify using any means possible. Uh, for me, uh, this made me interrogate my my own actions, my own uh, my, my own approaches to engaging um, with stakeholders. Um, uh, in this particular case, it was uh, engaging uh, with the business world, um, uh, and a point uh, in one of my pathways to, to impact many years ago where. Uh, we'd reached a block where we realised that we had to now, in order to achieve the impacts we wanted from this research, we had to reach um, powerful, influential chief executives of major companies around the world. Uh, and we realised that uh, as a team of researchers and charity people that we just simply did not have those social networks uh, and we had no way in, no way of uh, even working out who the relevant people were, let alone uh, connecting uh, with them. And um, uh, so through a charity that, that I was working with, uh, we employed uh, someone who basically came uh, into uh, our office with a black book and opened up and pointed to the various people that he was connected to, uh, was friends with, married, uh, related to through marriage, etc. And there were all these lists of the, the rich and the famous. Um, uh, and for his half price charity fee, he was willing to connect us uh, with his friends if we could convince him that our cause was a great cause that he could be part passionate about. Um, and, uh, and, and so for me, um, instantly now, I'm, I, I'm in, a, in a gray area, actually, because this feels now very similar to some of the kind of techniques that people were using with Cambridge Analytica. And for me, what's problematic about this is the fact that, uh, that money was changing hands in order to make the social connections happen. Um, at the same time, um, being more compassionate towards myself and uh, trying not to beat myself too, up too much about this, um, uh, I look back on it and uh, I also think, well, actually, 
um, uh, when I look at the value that I add to many of my projects, actually a lot of the value that, that I bring in terms of impact is, in fact, my connections. The fact that I have these high-level connections in whatever sphere uh, that enables me to open doors, to create opportunities that would be very difficult or at least very time-consuming for other people to, to get. Uh, and that, I would argue, is my social capital. Um, uh, and, uh, and that has value. Uh, and in this case, uh, we realised that our social capital uh, had fallen short, and so we used some financial capital in order to extend our networks. Uh, and some of the people that, uh, that, that we're connected to uh, through that are now people who would be within my network and the, the people I was working with uh, as just warm contacts. Who, uh, I don't have to do anything more than pick up the phone to or email to get an answer from. Um, so the jury is out here, and I'm not convinced um, whether what I did was was good or not. Um, but uh, but there are big alarm bells for me ringing uh, around that particular um, set of events uh, all those years ago, uh, and I'm not uh, uh, unambiguously uh, proud or ashamed of, of it, but uh, confused, I would argue, at this point. Um, uh, but I think that. That is a healthy place to be in. And uh, what I hope I'm, I'm doing as I set the scene this week is giving you a sense of how critically we need to interrogate ourselves and ask ourselves, you know what, actually, uh, genuinely, are my motives pure? Genuinely, uh, could this be seen in any way by anyone in any circumstance as manipulative? Uh, or uh, can I ha put my hand on my heart and say, no, I did this for the right reasons in the right way? Uh, and yes, I had influence, but not in a manipulative um, uh, kind of way. And so for me, this is at the, the core uh, of, of, this, of this episode. Uh, and it's a question. And the question is a question that I, I put to uh, many of the researchers that I train um, uh, on the occasions when I am doing training uh, on uh, I'm working with policymakers, because uh, I believe that the answer to this question helps us to understand reflexively as individuals where we draw the line and at what points we've taken a step too far. My question is, what is the difference between influence and manipulation? Uh, this is a, a bit of a head-scratching point in, in most of my trainings. Um, uh, and the great thing is that when I started out, I wasn't quite sure I knew what the, re the answer to this was. And, uh, and I've asked this in enough trainings now that I've got a whole load of fascinating answers to this. Um, uh, and I'm just going to give you a flavor for some of these because I think as you begin to think this through, you begin to realize, you know what? Uh, those are the inadvertent things that I do without realizing it that come across in ways that actually seem or look like they are manipulative. And that's the point at which I'm no longer simply providing evidence uh, and making my research available. Uh, I am now uh, effectively lobbying um, and, uh, and potentially seen as a lobbyist. Now, I do know uh, a number of researchers, actually, in my own uh, academic networks who are quite comfortable uh, seeing themselves as lobbyists um, uh, and as activists, in fact, in the political sphere. Uh, I think especially in the social sciences, um, uh, it is possible to, to actually find ways of doing that in uh, academically robust ways, which are morally robust as well. Um, uh, and, and so let's just park that for a moment, because for most of us, actually, the point at which I become a lobbyist is the point at which, you know what, I now don't feel comfortable anymore, and I've lost credibility. Um, 
So uh, for, for me, the first question that I need to ask myself uh, to, uh, as a check, uh, and this is a bit of a checklist, uh, so uh, just ask yourself these, each of these questions to ask yourself, looking back and now looking forward, am I on the right side of influence or manipulation? Uh, and how can I make sure that I remain on the right side of this? Uh, so the first is, uh, is what you're doing in the public interest? Or is this in your personal or institutional interest? Um, uh, and for most of us, this sounds like a really simple thing. Well, clearly, I'm doing uh, research which is publicly funded in the public interest, and I've got evidence that uh, if we go down this particular path, then this is going to uh, harm the interests of future generations, it's going to create uh, tyrannous environmental damage, etc. Clearly, what I'm doing is in the public interest. But just hold on a moment here, because what I'm noticing um, in my own practice and in the practice of my colleagues around me is uh, an increasingly subtle shift uh, and it is the impact agenda that is bringing this in in particular where uh, actually now uh, if you take my advice and based on my research now you change policy then there will in fact potentially be a personal gain here I'm going to be able to apply for uh, a, a promotion this is going to go on my CV and help make me more employable uh, and actually if this turns into a um, an impact case study under the research excellence framework for my university in the UK uh, then uh, there will be potentially a significant financial benefit to my institution. Um, uh, and so the, the question now is, 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 what do you do about those conflicts of interest? Is that a conflict of interest or is it just a win-win? Uh, and I think that you can conceptualise and sell that in either of those ways. So uh, for me, if it's transparent, uh, then, uh, then great, it's a win-win. You get some great evidence, I help you get that into policy, and I get something in return. And a lot of people are very happy with that. You know what, this now doesn't feel exploitative. Uh, I, don't, I don't mind the fact that I'm not paying you consultancy money to do this work for me because you're going to benefit as well. Great. So it's not that people will, in will intrinsically doubt us or have problems with this. It's for me about how transparent that is. Uh, and that we make it up very clear that there is this win-win um, so that later down the line, people don't realise when we're coming back to ask for a testimonial. So why do you need this testimonial? And how much is a ref impact case study worth? And okay, so was that actually what this was all about all along? And you know what? I feel used now. Uh, so, so let's just ask ourselves this question. Ultimately, I think uh, I would characterize what we're talking about here uh, as transparency. This is, uh, this is what I'm going to tag this particular uh, point in my checklist as. Uh, and uh, transparency uh, in this case is, is just about making it clear what you're doing and why you're doing it. And um, uh, so there are no kind of nasty surprises later. And it's interesting um, what opportunities there are for this. Um, and it's very limited and it's not typically done by uh, most academics. Uh, we will all in our universities have um, an interest register uh, that uh, I use for uh, the work that I do with Fast Track Impact, for example. So my employer knows exactly how many days per year and what benefits I get from uh, doing Fast Track Impact. Um, and they're aware of whether or not there may be a conflict of interests um, uh, with my employment. The problem with these, though, is that they're not um, publicly available. Uh, and what's interesting is that there are publicly available registers in certain areas. Uh, and I do wonder whether this is something that, that we need as an academy as a whole, uh, perhaps on a national uh, or even an international scale, so that we can be above question with this kind of stuff. So, uh, for example, in the pharmaceutical uh, area, uh, if I'm working in drug discovery, uh, pharmacy type stuff, 
um, then uh, then you uh, there is a public register that you can put stuff on. So if, as an academic, uh, a drug company pays for me to go to a conference, uh, then I can declare that on this public register, which then means if someone wants to come and say, I don't believe a word you're saying because you're funded by the drug companies, you can say, well, okay, uh, this is exactly what I've got on this register, and you can see transparently everything that is here um, and make your own mind up. But it's a, it's a great way of keeping things uh, nice and transparent. Scottish Government um, is uh, just coming up for a year now. Uh, the, the, the first anniversary of this legislation is just coming up uh, for lobbying policy. That means that um, if you are working uh, via a charity or some other kind of interest group, uh, as many of us do, um, and you have strong links with uh, with such a group, uh, I would say yeah, you're safer to uh, declare uh, that interest. Um, then you have to register um, uh, on this particular register with Scottish Government to say, yeah, uh, I do work, take money from work with this particular interest group, and I'm advising policy. Uh, uh, strictly speaking, just as an academic, you don't have to register uh, on this one. Um, but there's a grey area there in terms of those of us who work with charities. So the second um, thing on my checklist is uh, uh, making sure that this is all balanced and fair. And uh, when I'm on the right side of manipulation versus influence, uh, I am balanced and fair in my representation of the evidence. Uh, and this is, again, something that I think we are falling into without even realising it. Um, and if I look back uh, through my own career, uh, I, I'm not particularly proud of many of the policy briefs that I wrote because my funders told me very clearly, we want you to write a policy brief. And, uh, and here's the deal. You write it about our project that we funded you to do and nothing else. And for me, there's something that uh, here is, uh, is quite deeply troubling because there is what I would describe as a sin of omission here. Uh, because I have now omitted to tell that policy audience the fact that there is, in fact, a much broader body of evidence that potentially says something quite different to what I'm saying. And there is a bigger picture here, but I've only been told to represent the work um, from the perspective of my project. So here you are. This is my work. Now, uh, for me, that instantly becomes perceived as manipulative, despite the fact that when I've done this, it's been with fairly pure motives. Uh, because then a policymaker who does a bit more digging discovers that actually, hold on a minute, there's all this other evidence that says exactly the opposite. And why did they not tell me that? And it now looks like I'm trying to mislead them. Um, and I haven't told them why my research is different. So actually, maybe I just don't believe a word that that person told me. And this really quite deeply now undermines my trust in the researcher. Uh, this is is really quite a challenging one to overcome. Um, for me, the, uh, the the easiest way to do this is just to put some context around what you're doing. Um, and so very quickly, very easily, with very little evidence, I've got an introduction. Uh, I've got a couple of sections maybe, um, but if nothing else, an introduction that just sets the scene that says, uh, this is the body of work that this sits in. This is what the, the status quo is. Everything that's been published today says this. And now, in that context, here is our project. And this is why our project seems to be saying something different. Um, and you weigh up for yourself. Uh, we're going to perhaps tell you why we think this is more robust. It's the longest, biggest ever data set of its kind over a longer time period, whatever it is. Um, uh, but uh, but there's nothing disingenuous about this now because uh, we've, we've, we've opened this up. 
If we can, then uh, I think best practice is that we synthesize. Uh, now, uh, in an ideal world, this would be a systematic review, maybe with some meta-analysis in here, statistically analyzing, uh, if that's the kind of research uh, that, that we're reviewing, um, uh, to say, well, look, on average, this is the kind of stuff that is out there. And uh, and we can see that the vast majority of studies point in one direction. And yeah, there are a few that point in other directions, and this is perhaps the reason why. Um, and and you get a sense of of the reliability of a particular finding across a body of evidence now, rather than just picking out your one bit. Now, doing this properly is a huge investment of time. Uh, I know colleagues will spend a year of their lives, uh, or more even, uh, on a good systematic review. Uh, and uh, and the good news is there are some shortcuts to this. Uh, so if you just uh, Google rapid evidence synthesis, uh, there are a range of different techniques. Um, uh, I'm working with uh, my colleague Gav Stewart at Newcastle University. If you want to look up uh, some of his stuff, uh, he's got a bunch of techniques we're using on some of uh, our projects together that enable you now to ask very targeted questions. This is the limit. You have to be very clear about exactly what you are and aren't looking for, but that now um, in a matter of weeks and months can get you some results. So for the uh, the seminar I'm going to be giving uh, next week, scarily, uh, in uh, in London, uh, we uh, basically got a team of um, two postdocs um, uh, in one of my projects uh, and then a team of four others in another project uh, on a series of rapid and ev rapid evidence syntheses, um, and uh, and we were able to look across hundreds of papers, um, uh, uh, multiple different interventions, different effects, and say something with a fair degree of accuracy and reliability. Um, of course, with a lot of stuff saying, you know what, there is no evidence yet that is robust enough to say anything. Um, and within that context, then here is our project. This is our contribution. Um, so. Uh, there are ways of being more balanced and fair, um, but let's just not take this for granted. Let's just be critical here and ask yourself, actually, am I playing that role of a knowledge broker and responsibly shortcutting people to the evidence base rather than just privileging my evidence? Uh, the next thing, uh, the third of my, my checkboxes here is coercion. And uh, and again, like all of these, you think, well, of course, I'm not going to be coercive. But just again, hold on a minute and have a think about your terminology and your methods here. Because uh, in the old days, uh, we all, all used to be trained to uh, come up with policy recommendations. And that's something that I try and avoid nowadays. Uh, what I have is policy options. Uh, and there are always multiple options and uh, different things that you might say based on the evidence, depending on which option you might want to, to take. Uh, and that's a subtle shift in language, but it belies a, a deeper shift in approach. Um, uh, and I'm going to come on to this um, uh, in a moment in terms of the epistemology behind this. But the idea that, you know what, there is one universal truth, there is one right answer, uh, and my statistics show you that this is the answer, this is the number, uh, this is what you have to do. And if you want to be able to claim that what you were doing is evidence-based policy, then this is what you should be doing. One answer, one answer only. Um, and if you respect science, then this is what you will do. 
Um, and that might be an overstatement of how we might present this, but that's the kind of the ethos that's behind it. And that's what comes across uh, in the way that we talk about it and in the way that we frame our recommendations. Um, uh, and potentially some, uh, I've seen some researchers then really hamming this up, especially on social media uh, and shaming politicians who now ignore the evidence. Um, you are doing the wrong thing um, because this is not evidence-based. I would argue that there is actually no such thing as evidence-based policy. There is only ever evidence-informed policy. Uh, and my argument would be that the job of the politician is to weigh up the different lines of evidence. Uh, and very often they will be different lines of evidence, which may come up with not just a single answer when you actually look at the broader evidence base, uh, alongside, uh, alongside lines of argument which can include moral arguments and ideological concerns to then make a political decision, which is informed by the evidence, but may in fact go against the evidence. And that's their job and not our job uh, as, as researchers, uh, I would argue. Um, uh, so so let's, let's make sure that we're not actually um, uh, in subtle ways coercing uh, and shaming and, uh, and, and framing this as the one right way of doing things. Um, uh, if we want to stay on the right side of influence versus manipulation. Um, and then my final um, check, uh, checkpoint here uh, is, uh, is trust. Uh, I think uh, we, we have to build trust um, if we want to uh, stay on the right side of this. And uh, it is that point at which we break trust, whether it's by uh, unchecking uh, one of the three checkboxes that I've just given you or some other thing that you do, some uh, ill-considered uh, social media post that instantly uh, puts you on the, the wrong side of, um, uh, of, of a debate. Uh, it shows that you have a very strong opinion about something something uh, or whatever it is uh, instantly you can you can break that trust and it can be very hard to uh, to to regain that um, a, a little warning here um, just as an aside uh, the, there were some guys um, in I think it was a House of Commons select committee in the UK um, uh, and uh, a Brexiteer MP asked them, how did you vote? They all made the mistake of saying, I voted, remain. They didn't have to say how they voted. Um, uh, and uh, when they tried to, so that the MP then said, right, well, I don't therefore believe anything that you're about to say that is going to be anti-Brexit and say that Brexit is going to be bad because you would say that, wouldn't you? And when they tried to argue against that, it turned out he'd analysed their social media and was he had stuff on them that said that very clearly they were um, uh, on the remain side of that debate and in one case someone had signed a petition to repeal Article 50 and he said that is evidence that you are lobbying government therefore I still will not listen to a word you're saying. So um, whether or not this is actually right, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a, it is worth considering um, how you might be perceived and whether that perception might undermine people's trust in you. And for me I try and play as safe as I can uh, on, on that kind of stuff. Uh, there was a, a recent survey by the Parliamentary Office for Science and Technology uh, that asked questions of MPs in the UK. Uh, I uh, suspect that you would get very similar things uh, based on my understanding of the literature anyway, uh, in other contexts nationally, uh, and asked them, uh, what are the top things you look for that tell you um, whether or not it's worth engaging with evidence from research as part of your job? Uh, and interestingly, the, the two top things um, were the credibility of the source and the relevance of the information. Good answers, I have to say. I, I'm impressed with that. Um, 
And uh, and 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 so my question to you is actually, how credible are you as a source? Now, very often I think uh, this is about the the, the printed page, um, and is this now uh, a post note, for example? Is this a policy brief as part of a series that has a good reputation, that has um, government-funded research councils who are underpinning the research that is in this policy brief, for example? Uh, is it in a peer-reviewed journal article, or is it based on a peer-reviewed journal article? Is this by someone who has a good reputation? But instantly, you know, at this point, we're moving into the territory of actually, who are you and what is your reputation? And are you believable? Are you credible uh, as a source? Uh, and have a think about how you come across, um, especially when you're doing stuff face to face and what you might be inadvertently doing that potentially undermines your trust. Uh, and beware of human nature here, because uh, I think that uh, we are all taught from an early age that um, uh, you should believe someone's body language more than you should believe what is coming out of their mouths, because uh, we learn from an early age that people lie. Uh, and that when someone is lying, uh, the best way to uncover the fact that they're lying is to read their body language or their behaviour rather than what they are actually saying. Um, uh, and if you are presenting something in a way that uh, is fundamentally unconfident uh, and you look like you don't believe a word that you're saying and you're deeply uncertain about it all, um, then uh, you may actually create on a subconscious level a sense of, well, I probably shouldn't be believing anything this person is saying. Um uh, so, so, so think about this quite deeply. Um, the the second thing that I, I thought might be worth just bringing to bear in in terms of the the issue of trust is uh, some research that I've done uh, recently on this. So this is uh, a paper uh, that uh, I uh, wrote uh, with my colleagues. Um, uh, Rosalind Bryce uh, from University of the Highlands and Islands, and Ruth Matchen, who's from Newcastle University, uh, and. Uh, what we did in this paper was to to look at um, uh, the the social processes through which research findings make it into policy or practice or not, uh, as the case may be. Uh, and so, in this the broader project that we did, we looked at. Um, I think six different research findings. Um, uh, so uh, you've got a research finding in a paper, um, and the question is, what happens to this? Um, and does it make it into policy or practice or not? And if so, how does it get there? Uh, and in this case, um, in this paper, we're zooming in on one set of findings around climate change and peatlands uh, in, uh, in Scottish government. Uh, to try and find out how those research findings travelled from person to person through these science policy practice networks using a quantitative tool called social network analysis combined then with a multi-year analysis of uh, interviews um, uh, over it's about a 10-year period. Um, we're going to look at uh, how this science policy network evolved um, uh, as it grappled with and tried to understand and act on, uh, on the evidence that was coming out on this uh, on this particular issue and uh, I think what was really interesting for me is that one of the key findings that comes out of this is about the role of trust um, and, uh, and in particular the role uh, of intermediaries 
Uh, one of the things that uh, that we found in particular was when you looked and you analysed the, the the networks here was that there were particular intermediary organisations that had a lot of influence um, uh, on the policy process, uh, and they were the conduits for this research evidence. Uh, but they were not actually research institutions; they were charities and third sector type organisations. Uh, there was a, a government agency in there, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's fine. Um, uh, what's interesting is that you look at the research institutions and they are really peripheral in this network. So, yeah, they're in it, uh, but most of the stuff that uh, is getting to policy is very much indirectly and it's going through these intermediaries. Uh, and this is, of course, a risk uh, because uh, now we're having to trust someone else to translate responsibly and not cherry pick or distort or do things in ways I'm not comfortable with. Um, I'm not in complete control of that. Uh, of course, the, the benefit is that someone else is doing this work for me. Great, good news. Uh, I'm time poor and I've got people who are much more expert than, than me with much better connections. They're doing this. Uh, for me, the, the sweet spot here is building a much better, stronger relationship with those intermediaries, which is what I did. Um, as a result of that insight, I then uh, became research lead for the IUCN, International Union of the Conservation of Nature, and their UK peatland programme uh, to make sure that, uh, that they were getting shortcutted to the best evidence possible, which of course included uh, my evidence, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but much more broadly than that, uh, and lots of big and long-term processes of getting the entire research community together around these issues to synthesize and work out what we can say with certainty to go into the, the policy process. But uh, a growing recognition over this period that, uh, that you know what, uh, yeah, that might be a solution for me, but uh, we, we need a bigger, uh, longer-term solution to this. And uh, ultimately what came out of that process was something called Climate Exchange, which is a Scottish government-funded centre of expertise that uh, has a collection of different universities and their main research providers uh, doing long-term uh, research along with proactive responses uh, to government. Uh, we need some evidence on this to go into that policy process um, and a mechanism to go directly to the researchers to either commission and get new research done or find the best quality evidence instantly to put that into the policy process um, and cutting out those middlemen uh, as far as possible in, in a process that, that is a really reliable, um, stable, trusted conduit uh, that the researchers trust as much as the policymakers trust to to make this stuff uh, happen. Um, I'm going to conclude uh, at this point um, uh, by giving you some really important take-home messages which are going to uh, form the, the basis for what I'll do um, next week or whenever I get around to recording the second part of this. Uh, because uh, ultimately what we're, we're doing, I would argue, in this process of going through these different checks is, as researchers, we are trying to detect and manage risk in our engagement with the policy process. Um, and in so doing, we are now able to much more responsibly uh, take the risks that we feel comfortable taking in order to take a, an increasingly relational approach to our engagement with policy that is much more co-productive and two-way and understanding the needs, the constraints, the context in which the policy community are working and adaptively providing the answers. Great relational dialogic. As a result, a result of that, more influential. As a result of that, higher impact. But at the same time, of course, as a result of that, 
higher risk. Uh, the more relational we go, I would argue, the more likelihood we have for impact and the more likely we are to fall foul of this whole process and for things to go wrong, whether that's uh, reputational risks or just the risk to our time. This stuff can be a real suck for time. Um, I, I think that if we can identify our red lines ahead of time, then that can really free us up. Uh, so for me, uh, this uh, is not about taking um, some kind of backdoor approach to having policy influence. It has to be very open, transparent, very much front door approach. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm limited only now to the mechanics of government. Uh, so, for example, in the last consultation that I responded to on behalf of uh, the research group that I'm in uh, and a couple of my projects, uh, I was one of 40,000 responses, uh, and so that's fine. I, and I think uh, questions would be asked if I didn't put forward evidence through those formal means. Uh, but what are the chances that my evidence will actually get noticed by anyone? Well, who knows, but I'm not going to take that chance, which is why I've got now a policy seminar uh, next week, uh, which I've curated with a whole series of different researchers giving that bigger picture, not just my research. Um, uh, to ensure that those core bits of evidence uh, and messages linked to them uh, are visible to the right people. They have uh, visibility to us. There are mechanisms, uh, I think I've described my post postcard to your future self, uh, have a look at my blog uh, for how I'm going to do this, that enable them to get the ongoing support from our research teams if they need that, to be able to understand, interpret, use that evidence base in the policy making process. Um, so, so great, we've got these informal mechanisms and we can be highly influential when we use these responsibly, but it is about taking a, a really risk-averse and, uh, and responsible um, uh, approach to this. Uh, I think if you do that thinking, you're way less likely in the heat of the moment when you're under pressure, you're asked a question, you're on the spot to make the wrong decision. You've done that thinking ahead of time, you know where your red lines are and you say, you know what, I'm not comfortable answering that question. Or, you know what, I go away, I think about it, I come back to you. Um, uh, the, I said I would allude to this, I alluded to this earlier. Uh, I think that um, depending on how you view what knowledge is and what constitutes valid knowledge, so in social science jargon, your epistemology, um, uh, you may feel more or less comfortable going more or less relational. Uh, and I generalize hideously here, so forgive me in advance. Um, uh, but but generally speaking, from my experience of training and working with academics from across every discipline in this space, um, uh, the, the colleagues I have who are much more reductionist or positivistic in their training, uh, and there are entire disciplines uh, where this is very much the mode of training uh, and of, of knowledge generation. Um, uh, it's, it is is much more challenging uh, in this space because uh, you will have what you believe is the right answer, the best answer that is most statistically robust. Uh, and, and actually um, uh, taking off those epistemological blinkers to say, well, you know what? Uh, yes, this might be what my evidence says, but there could be another way of looking at this that could be equally valid um, from a more qualitative perspective that looks at these issues from a, from a very different perspective 
or uh, lines of moral argument that might suggest that my scientific approach may be, may be morally inappropriate for a particular group of people. Uh, you have to be able to, 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 to look at those kinds of issues and not be too uncomfortable because when you go into the policy arena, those kind of questions will come to you. Uh, I know many colleagues who still interact very healthily uh, within that way of thinking about knowledge, uh, but they're just much more risk averse in terms of, right, well, I'm not answering that question. Uh, this is where my job ends as the researcher, your job begins as the, as the politician, um, and I stop there. I protect my independence, uh, my perceived objectivity, uh, and I take a step back. I know others who just say, you know what, this is too risky for me. I just don't engage. I publish and I let others do that work. And that's fine. You, you make that own, your own call on that. Uh, for for those colleagues of mine who uh, are more relativistic, postmodern, uh, interpretivist, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, who look regularly in their research um, for different uh, ways of knowing um, that uh, that might compare and contrast scientific versus local knowledge, for example, in, in their work. Um, actually, this becomes much more comfortable and it's easier to be quite uh, adaptive uh, and reflective on the go uh, as you uh, get confronted with these challenges in these situations. Um, but I would argue at the same time that uh, it is these colleagues that often take the biggest risks and who need to be absolutely clear uh, on a moral basis for where your red lines um, happen, to, happen to lie. So um, I'm going to pack up my stuff and uh, and uh, just go to the airport at this point. Um, uh, I will uh, hopefully next week um, have a, a, a bumper podcast with uh, an interview-based thing uh, and a part two where I reflect on uh, on some of this stuff more practically. Uh, either way, there will be a part two, um, uh, hopefully next week, um, uh, where I'm going to just start thinking a little bit more practically. So I want to, to ask, um, how can you write a, a really effective policy brief? Um, uh, so very often these are the, the mechanisms, uh, the conduits through which we do this work. Um, uh, so how do you write one that works? Uh, how do you use that in a way that will actually um, get you re results? Uh, and we'll have a look at a range of the more informal mechanisms that you can use alongside a variety of more formal things that, that you can do, which are fairly obvious. You can research them for yourself, uh, depending on what organisation or government you're trying to work with. Um, but uh, I, I will try my best to illustrate those um, with examples from the literature and from my own experience uh, to bring those to life. Uh, and maybe even uh, with a few stories from what's about to happen uh, this week. Uh, so we will see. Uh, in the meantime, uh, go away and have a think about this. Um, do some deep thinking. Go and talk to uh, a, a friend, a colleague. Uh, it's quite an interesting uh, conversation starter um, uh, for your partner or best friends uh, down the pub, wherever you are. What is the difference between manipulation and uh, an influence? Uh, and you're primed already to have some interesting answers to this. Um, but it is a, an endlessly fascinating conversation uh, that I think when you start discussing this and thinking deeply about this, uh, you will become more self-aware and more self-critical. And for me, that is the work you need to do that will underpin any of the practical stuff that we will then look at next week that will ensure that it works and doesn't lead to negative unintended consequences.